0: I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is, it's just what I believe it is. Some people that I've met, it's just I've had friends and, and the minute they find out about me or the minute that I, I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm, they don't want anything to do with me.
1: There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it or whether it's the people. I respect a lot of faith, and I think that Christianity is a pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. La cristianidad es muy importante porque podemos aprender valores cristianos donde no podemos, donde descubrimos más acerca de nosotros. My view on anyone who claims to have a
0: monopoly on truth is
1: that there is no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. today we're uh, asking the question, is Christianity too narrow? Because you and your friends have asked the question. And we're in for a real treat today. Dr. John Weatherly is our guest speaker today. Uh, he and I have been friends. We go, we go way back. Uh, Dr. Weatherly currently serves at Johnson uh, University. He's a VP of academic affairs there. Before that, he served 23 years teaching people how to read the Bible. He would probably say, well, uh, at Cincinnati Christian University. And it was at that time where Dr. Weatherly was one of my elders when I was an adolescent, And he's the guy that sat my brother and I down at Panera Bread to get us ready for our ordination service to become pastors. And I'll never forget, he looked at Nathan and I and he said, all right, boys, explain to me the Trinity but like I'm a sixth grade boy, so I know that you understand it. And we're like, oh man, we're dead in the water. <laughs> um, but, but we love Dr. Weatherly. Um, he helps me and a lot of folks take top shelf ideas to put them at the bottom shelf so we can play with them and explore them and really come to believe that they're true. But I, I would say uh, Dr. Weatherly's greatest achievement will be achieved in two months. Uh, he's been married to his wife Tammy for 40 years. Uh, and two, Yeah, yes yes and you know your parenting is next level when your kiddos for your 40th pay for all expense paid vacation to bar harbor so they'll be back this summer to enjoy that and yes you are uh jealous as well as i am uh they have two they have two children kale who's a chemist allison is a doctor and probably their crown jewel, not their children, but their granddaughter, uh, Margot. So, would you give a big hand for Dr. John Weather as he comes and cheers. Okay.
0: There's about a million reasons why this has just been a, a terrific weekend for me and Tammy. And by the way, Tammy is super easy to be married to. It's the other direction that's the challenge. Um, but uh, just thanks for arranging the best fall color in the history of the world. Uh, you know, while we were here yesterday, was amazing. Even, t- I mean, today is kind of gray and wet, but it's still beautiful and amazing. Uh, we live in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, which I kind of think of as, as Southern New England with barbecue, um, <laughs> but, uh, but this, is, this is a special, special place uh, this time of year, and I'm not talking about the Patriots. Um, Though I could, but I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter, really. I, I, I'm not. But it's just—I I mean, honestly—to see see Ben in, in his in, with with Crystal here in their native environment, and and to you know remember when Ben was not quite old enough to wipe his own nose and so forth—is just pretty amazing. And then to think all that's happened, and I'm still only 39 years old. Uh, God is good, you know, uh, all the time. Um, the question of the day is: Christianity too narrow? Well, I wasn't brought all the way here to say, yeah, it's too narrow, so, so let's, let's stop doing Christianity. Obviously, I'm going to say, no, it's not too narrow. But um, let's, let's be honest. This is one of the most widely held objections to the Christian faith. And it's not as if there aren't reasons, good reasons, thoughtful reasons that people think this. As I'm, as I'm watching that bumper video, I'm thinking, oh, this really really captures it. This is what people say. In particular, as I listen to this, I, I think it's the second person who says, you know, I, I, I get to know people, and then when I do something that goes against their religion, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And I just, I heard a lot of pain in that. And I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a particularly sensitive person. I've, I've outsourced sensitivity to my wife. Uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I hear that. This is, this is a real thing. This is not a made-up question, and it's not, you know, where we can give snappy answers to, uh, to, to stupid questions. So I'm going to do my best, as someone who is a Christian, uh, <laughs> I suppose I'm a professional Christian, you know. I don't have an honest job. I get paid to think about Jesus um, and to talk about Jesus. But I want to do my best to make an honest accounting of this very real question, is, is Christianity too narrow? And not just to say, oh, well, here's, here's seven reasons why, why we, should, we should think otherwise. A text from the Bible that expresses what seems to be the narrowness of, of Christianity, as it's often described, is in the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 12, where the apostle Peter is talking and says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals, by which we must be saved. Now, back during the Spanish-American War, when I was in graduate school, <laughs> I, was, I was, it seems like it, um, and uh, I, I was reading a book, which is what you do in, in grad school and in, in, in what I do. You know, my d- our daughter's a doctor. Well, she learned to treat people in, in grad school, and her son's a chemist, and he, he messed with chemicals. I would read books. It's all different. Um, I'm, I'm reading this book, and the author says, this text is the most dangerous and harmful and toxic text in the Christian scriptures, because it makes this unequivocal, absolute claim, this is it, my way or the highway. Salvation is in no one else. So, let's think about this. Why does Christianity seem too narrow. We're, we're really exploring some of the remarks in, in that video. Well, Christianity seems too narrow because the claim to be the only way of salvation seems too narrow. It seems bigoted. It seems prejudiced. I mean, after all, there have to be many ways to God, right? God is infinite. And so, so, how can there be one way to an infinite God. And, and how can and God is, is, is transcendent. God is different from us and, and removed from our experience. I don't experience God the way I experience a beautiful fall day or a conversation with someone else or uh, a good night's sleep or even a bad night's sleep. It's not something, He's not something that I experience directly. And as I say that, should I even be calling him he? This is a question you know, that I have about God because He is. He is other. Let's, let's think about that infinite thing. How can you say there's, there's one way to God if, if God is infinite? How can an infinite God have, have one way? Well, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but I like to hang out with mathematicians and just watch them work. Um, and, and something I learned from someone who was in mathematics years ago is a, a, a sort of a solution or explanation of, of the notion of the infinite. Um, a a mathematician by the name of Hilbert, and so it's it's often called Hilbert's Hotel. So imagine a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, and you go to check in, and the clerk says, I'm sorry, but tonight we have an infinite number of guests, and so all of our rooms are full. You'll have to go elsewhere. And you say, well, you know, I understand, but since this is, you have an infinite number of rooms, I have a solution. Move everyone to the room numbered one higher than where they are right now, and I will move into room one. Problem solved. Okay? Now, after you check in, an infinite number of people come to check in. Okay? So the lobby is very full. And, and the proprietor says, I'm sorry, the place is full. But one or several, maybe all of those infinite people at once, speak up and say, ah, we have a solution. Move everyone to the room that is numbered twice the number that they're in presently. They'll all then be in even-numbered rooms, which exist in an infinite number. We will move into the odd-numbered rooms, which also exist in an infinite number. I hope your brain is exploding at this point. <laughs> okay. So if you can check an infinite number of people into a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, even though all those rooms are full, surely there is more than one way to God who is infinite. Okay. That's, I don't know that that's an argument so much as it's a story. To, to be told about this, but it's a, it's a thoughtful perspective. And after all, religion is mostly about ritual, doctrine, which candles to, you know, to light on which days, how to, how to wash your hands, you know, which way to bow and so forth, what, what words to say. And those aren't things that can be tested to be proved right or wrong. Um, and, and they don't really affect the way that people live, right? So, so this this idea that this is the only way, that's that's narrow. And after all, claims to truth are really power plays. The only absolute truth is that there are no absolutes, we're told. Now, there's a problem there. How do you know that's the only absolute truth? But but we're not not going to explore that interesting question right now. So, So, what that amounts to then is when people make absolute claims, When they say, this is the best, this is the only, this is the one, what they're really doing is not making a claim about truth, they're making a play for power. This is a way to get other people to do what you want to do. Our nation is the best nation. Our people are the best people. This way is the best way, the right way, the only way. That's a way of getting people on your side to support your stuff. It's a way of getting them under you so that, so that you're on top. You know, I, we, we're parents, we had kids, now we have a granddaughter, it's kind of a replay except you give her back. Um, and that's what grandchildren are wonderful. Uh, but, uh, you know, as, as a parent, you say to your kid eventually, you're going to do this because I told you. Well, I mean, that's, that's something that parents have to resort to eventually when kids are five, you can't explain everything in a way that they're going to understand. But what's it like to say to somebody, <laughs> who's an adult, you know, do it because I told you. That's terrible, you know, and it's, 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 a, it's a play for power. So in the end, especially when we look at the fact that most people follow whatever religious teaching they grow up with, whatever surrounds them in, in the culture in which they live, this is why we can kind of draw world maps and color them in according to religious adherence. Um, it, it, because of these, these cultural things, and so forth, what we realize is that that religion is a sort of uh, an expression of people's subjective experience in culture as a result of the way that people have made claims and the attempt to exert power. You can't claim to be the one right way. Let's look at this from another angle. You know, Christians may be good and virtuous and generous people, but they're not the only good and virtuous and generous people. We can think of lots of moral exemplars, outstanding people, people that we all admire and would like to be like, who are not Christians at all. We can go deep into history and find figures like Confucius or the Buddha. We can go into more recent history and, and, and find people like, uh, uh, like Gandhi. Uh, we can think of organizations that exist in the present like Doctors Without Borders, Uh, The Red Cross, well, cross, isn't that Christian? It started as a Christian organization. It in in no way identifies as as a Christian organization presently. Uh, Or, you know, even even some great figures who would be identified as Christians who aren't really what we might think of as Christians in the traditional sense uh, in terms of, of their belief system. A figure of the early 20th century that I'm kind of interested in because I'm both into New Testament studies and classical music, and he did both of those things. He was a scholar and he was an organist. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, uh, who also then became a medical doctor and went to Africa, started a hospital that was, was very helpful in, in Southern Africa. Um, was he a Christian? Well, not in the traditional sense. He didn't affirm the deity of Jesus. He didn't affirm the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and what he affirmed as the most important thing was respect for life. And so he said, I'm not even sure I want to kill a germ. Uh, but, but did wonderful things for humanity out of a belief system that doesn't conform to, to what we normally think of as Christianity. So, to say that there's no salvation elsewhere, that the only way to life after death is through the Christian faith, is to say something that can't be proved true and that shouldn't be believed by thoughtful people. There's just too many objections to that narrow absolutist claim. This is what people say, and it needs to be taken seriously. This is, this is not nothing. This is, this is not a, a, a position that we can dismiss um, easily, especially when we see how, in many instances, claims to absolute truth really do produce oppression and suffering and fear. You know, the claims to absolute truth in, in recent history that upheld totalitarian regimes uh, are easy to see in that direction. And we can even point our fingers at, at the, some of the institutions within the Christian world who have covered up crimes, which are pretty disgusting, uh, and say, you know, maybe, maybe the problem is that absolute claim. Well, as I said, I didn't come here to say that Christianity is too narrow. But I don't want to approach this by simply offering arguments against those things. Instead, I want us to explore this with a kind of a what-if approach. Now, all of my what-ifs are things that I'm going to say yes to. But I'm I'm going to put them as what-if because I want us to try to enter into a kind of a sympathetic exploration of these ideas. You know, you can't, if you're reading a book or watching a movie, you can't enjoy it if you don't enter into the world of that. You know, it's no good to go to Star Wars and then say, that can't happen. You know, you've, you've got to at least suspend disbelief for the moment to get into the story. So that's, that's what we're inviting ourselves to do. So what if we humans need some things? What if one of the things we need is justice? Now, you know, we, we know what it is to cry out for justice because we look around us and we see terrible things that happen. We see crimes that are committed. We see people who are, who are deprived, who never have a chance, who are, who are oppressed, who suffer needlessly and innocently. And maybe this is the worst when we see it in, in children. Uh, you know, my, my experience of, of justice recently was, um, I got called for jury duty this month. Okay, I, oh, so, I'm so sorry for you. Well, honestly, it worked out great. It was like, you know, one hour of orientation and one morning, and that was it. I mean, Knox County, Tennessee is awesome, people. You need to, you need to come. So, but in that, in that one morning, I was on, on jury duty. My group was, was sitting in this narrow hallway, and I'm on social media saying, Cologne ought to be outlawed, and, because uh, we're all too close, and uh, kind of how do you breathe there? And, and they call us, they call us, okay they just say okay come this way and we all file into a jury room and and we're coming in and you see the prosecutors and the defense attorney and the defendant and i looked at the defendant and man oh, it's just heartbreaking young guy and i know what defense attorneys do they bought him a suit a shirt that was too big so he looked kind of small but he looked small and young and scary. And then I looked back and I saw this this couple and the man's got his arm around the woman like super tight. And I thought, defendants, parents. And then we sat down and uh, the judge said, all right, we're going to be selecting jurors for this trial. This is a drug trial. And they said, and it's a murder trial. And I looked over and I saw some other people and I thought, oh, gosh. Victim's family, and right there, I just realized we're sunk. You know, the best human justice system in the world can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. In this situation, as the story goes, and I wasn't selected for the jury because I use too many big words, <laughs> but um, which I'm doing right now, um, but um, you know get it exactly right, and you don't bring the victim back, and you don't assuage any of the grief that either of these families are feeling, and you don't change anything about the the potential and the meaning and the purpose of the perpetrator's life. And what did he do? He he sold opiates, a controlled substance, illegally to someone, and she overdosed. And in the state of Tennessee, that's now second-degree murder because we're trying to get a grip on this opiate problem and shut it off at the source. I understand the reason for that. But we long for that justice, and we know that we can't achieve it. And here's the other thing. I look at this kid and I think, oh my goodness, that could be my kid. Or it could have been me, because I was young and stupid enough to say there's money in this. And it's up to them what they do with it after I sell it. I could have been that person. Life ruined, having ruined someone else's life. Because the the truth be told, I'm not as good as all of that. I have on multiple occasions with my actions and especially with my words, because I'm a word person, I have hurt people that I care about. And I've hurt people without even realizing it. I am like that guy sitting there in that shirt that is too big. So it's not just justice that we need, it's mercy, okay? It's mercy, and not just a mercy that forgives, but a mercy that puts back together. And this is why we also need power, because it's not just enough to have someone who will say, that's all right, I forgive you. We need someone who can make it better, make us better. Make our world different. Okay, what we long for, what, what Jesus expressed in the prayer he taught his followers, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, we, that's what we long for, and we need justice, mercy, and power to do that. Now, what if that is all coming through? That can only come through a truly good human. Not someone who was bound up in the, in the rebellious, selfish uh, search for autonomy that most of us are caught up in, just wanting to run the show and have our own stuff and, and be king and queen of, of all that we survey. But someone who was, was driven by something other than that selfishness. Someone who, who gave himself utterly for the sake of other people. A truly good human and one in whom God is uniquely present. Not merely the guy who got it better reaching upward than everybody else, but God himself entering into our very experience as human beings, as women and men living in the world, suffering in the world, dying in the world, and facing all of the vicissitudes and difficulties and problems that a person faces in the world. What if it All of those things we need can only come through someone like that. And what if all of that then is to benefit a particular kind of person? Not the kind that we would expect, not people who are good, not people who are powerful, not people who are well off, not the usual people who seem to have it going in our world, but the weak, the poor, the sick, the suffering, the lowly, the evil. What if it's for them and not for the other kind? And let's recognize, if you're thinking, oh, yeah, which which kind am I? We are all born in helplessness. And we will all die in helplessness. And in between, some of us have capacities, most of us maybe. But the illusion of our autonomy and of our strength is something that our birth and our death gives the lie to. And the everyday existence, how much we depend on each other how much we need what others contribute. We are not strong people. We are are weak people. So, what if all of this is is to benefit them? And what if that benefit that is given is not merely, so to speak, to get your ticket punched so that you live after you die? And let's not minimize that. For those of us who think, you know, I think after death there's nothing, and who are comforted by that thought, let me just, just suggest, that to contemplate our own nonexistence is terrifying. Because life in the end is good. Even if you have a bad life, life is good. And the reason that we cling to life so much is that we have a persistent, inescapable hope in life that life is good. And the reason we recognize it is a tragedy when someone wants her life, his life, to end is that we intuitively recognize the goodness of life. So to to think that we're not going to exist is little comfort until life becomes living death and living hell. So not to minimize that idea that that over the horizon of our mortality is more life that God would grant to us, but to understand that that the blessing, the benefit that God has to give is not just that, but to be restored to our true selves in the present to discover what it is that we were made to be, why we were born into this world. Not just in terms of job, or, or, or partner, or, or family, or experience, but what does it mean to be truly a human being, and one who amazing ideas created in the image of, of our Creator, in a world that is filled with meaning and purpose to be restored to that idea, to experience God's reign on earth, not in heaven, but before heaven, as well as in heaven, and according to this amazing Christian message, as he will restore the earth to become the, the eternal habitation of his people who will experience the full purpose for which they were created and full fellowship with their creator. This is what it means to see justice and mercy and power worked out in, in human life. So, what if? What if all of that comes together? And so, what then if the issue is not simply to believe in the right religion? And we could spend another bit of time talking about how religion itself is a problematic category, that it lumps too much together that is different. But we're not going to talk about that, okay? Uh, that's my way of coming back another Sunday, Ben, okay? <laughs> all right. Uh, instead, what if the issue is not to believe in the right religion, but to submit to the true king? To submit to the true king. Now, the problem that we have is we are in a stubborn quest to express autonomy, to run the show. And we've got to submit to the true king. Okay. We have to submit. To the true king. Religion as a category puts the focus on ritual. In the true understanding of the Christian faith, the question is not ritual. The question is, who's your king? The rituals are all about reminding us who the true king is and what he does. They're for us, not for him. We're not figuring out how to please God. We're figuring out how to bow to our true king. And what if that king, then, is became king in a way that no one else did? Christianity as making an absolute claim to truth can be accused of triumphalism. We win, you lose, neener, neener. Okay. And I'm not bitter about all your Super Bowls, Pats fans. I'm really not. (laughs) Okay. I mean, somebody's got to win. It might as well be you people. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we We have so much in common. Okay. Uh, But, you know, triumphalism, we're the best. It's very ironic when I thump my chest. Um, but Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is the antidote of triumphalism. Okay, How does this king become king? Well, the whole gospel story, the whole story of Jesus is the outgrowth of the story of Israel in the Bible. I'm not talking about modern Israel. Leave that aside. Cleanse, cleanse your minds of that distraction. Ancient Israel, a nation of slaves. Okay? A nation which is caught between the centers of power in the ancient world, Mesopotamia and Egypt. And it's just kind of a plaything between the two of them. Constantly oppressed by neighbors and great empires. Never wealthy, never powerful. At its height, a kind of a micro-kingdom. But mostly oppressed under the thumb of the rich and powerful. Even, even subject to ethnic cleansing. Taken out of their land. And then it's about a poor, humble man born into that nation, born with the, with the, the, the appearance of shame in the circumstances of his birth, born in poverty to, to parents who are making a subsistence living, who live in a, in, a, in a village that even the other oppressed people look down on you know, a, just a, 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 a no place place, who's, who's regarded as a sort of a country bumpkin, an uneducated kind of a guy, yet who, who demonstrates something which is remarkable. He is mighty in power. By his own authority, he, his followers say, he is enabling the, the lame to walk. He even raises the dead. He even stills the storms. Not by knowing the right words to say, not by having a better relationship with God and so getting God to do things for him, but just saying, hey, Storm, shut up. Hey, lame person, get up on his own. Yet, he never uses his power for his own advantage. And so, what does he do? It's, this, is, this story is about a man who we, who we, in whom we see that power come to fruition in a way that we see it in no other. The one who does miracles allows himself to, well, he, he takes the side of the weak, the suffering, the guilty, allows himself to be tortured to death in public for the sake of people who don't deserve it. And he tells his followers that in doing that, he's taking all of their garbage on himself. Their guilt on himself, yeah, but also their weakness, their lowliness, when they suffer unjustly, he's with them in that too. He dies for them. He suffers with them. He is one with them. All of the garbage of the world, he says, is coming to its climax as he lets the imperial power, the people who say they're in charge, the people who say that they're king, do their worst to him. And so he becomes king, demonstrating his power. He ascends to his throne as he does that. And God affirms that as he raises him from the dead. And so his followers say he is seated at the right hand of God. And even while he seems absent, he is ruling over the world through the power that he has let loose, through his justice and mercy by his spirit among those who know him. are beginning to experience and to express and to live out the true reign of the true God. Well, there's the end of the triumphalism, because the strength of the God of Christianity, the strength of the God of Israel, is the strength of the weak, the lowly. Those of us who recognize, you know, whatever I am, whatever I have, whatever I can do, I am a needy beggar. I am weak, but he is strong. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so we see transformation that happens among his followers as that desire for autonomy is not instantly overcome, but gradually transformed into something else. We see the service, the self-giving love that imitates the true king in their lives. We see the, the love expressed for people who are even unlovely among them, when they're at their best. And we see people come together who have been divided, who have been, who have been enemies before. Now they become friends. If You know, sometimes somebody will say, so what's your, you know, what's your peak experience as a Christian? And I'd, I'd probably give a different answer, different days. One answer I would give, this is today's answer. Uh, several years ago, I was visiting a church in, in India. I was, I was with this this group of Christians in India for, for about a week or so. And on Sunday, i met this church. It's in a, in a market town outside of Bengaluru. Um, and um, people had come from the town, but many of them had come from the countryside and had ridden buses to get there. Uh, and uh, most of those who came from the countryside were people who worked day by day in other people's fields. So they would work through the day and get paid a coin. And then with that coin, they would buy food. So right just at the bottom, okay? Well, I'm, I'm there. I'm an honored guest because I'm from far away, and so I'm sitting up in the front and offered a few words in the service that, that were translated into, into the local language. But then it came time for the Lord's Supper, and, um, and, and my host who's sitting next to me said, why don't you help serve? And I said, well, of course, I'd be delighted to. Well, their custom, and and this is an indigenous Indian church, so the men are on one side, the women are on the other. Most people are seated on the floor. The older people are seated in plastic chairs at the back, and they're kind of arranged from youngest to oldest as, as they go back. And the routine was first the women were served and then the men, and they were served from oldest to youngest. So the oldest women came forward first. And so here were about a dozen ladies, all of them, I'm sure, over 60, and, and I took a tray of, of little cups just like we would have and began placing them in, in their hands. And the first, the first woman, uh, I, I looked at her. She was, she was slender. She was wrinkled. Her face was obviously, you know, burned from, from endless days in the sun. As, as I placed the cup in her hands, I felt the thick, sharp calluses on her hands from endless days of agricultural work. And I looked in her face, and I saw an expression of joy and wonder like I don't think I've ever seen before. And I realized there has been a dignity bestowed on her through the message of Jesus that she couldn't find anyplace else. And I, and, and I knew, you know, this is, this is the presence of God. Okay, because this is, this is the true good news. And to the degree that I understand that I am more like her than not, I'm starting to get it. This is, this is what this thing is all about. You know, Ben said I, I, I teach people to read the Bible well. Uh, I still get to teach, which is good news. You're an administrator. You can tell, you know, I'm the vice president. I can do whatever I want. I want to teach, so I still get to teach. Um, the main thing I teach people about reading the Bible is when the, it, you're reading and it doesn't make sense, read more of the context. Okay? Reading the Bible is like watching a movie. You don't just watch the previews and think you know what the whole movie is about. You've, you've got you've to watch it from beginning to end. So let's go back to that text that we looked at, Acts chapter 4. And let's, let's think about the context. Let you, you look and I'll read. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, hey, big shots, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, there's just been a man who has been restored to walk in the name of Jesus explicitly. Okay. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Okay, up to this point it could be a little triumphalistic, but now listen carefully, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. The true God is the God who works in weakness, who entered into our weakness in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is why there is, no sal- there is salvation in nowhere else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. It's this story that embodies this thing that we need most as human beings. If there is but one true king, then to submit to that true king is not narrow, but it is the only way. It is the way of truth. You know, Jesus himself said, the way that leads to destruction is wide, the way that leads to life is narrow. He said that at the end of his Sermon on the Mount some of his most cherished teaching about love and forgiveness that the whole world wants to embrace. But he makes that whole sermon about, do you acknowledge me as your king? The true king is Jesus, and that changes everything. It means that the love, the hope, the grace, the mercy, the justice, the power, it can be ours. Let's pray. Lord, um, in, in your infinite mercy, you have done what we cannot imagine. This, this story, this, this thing that you did is not something that we're clever enough to make up. It's just the best thing in the world. And whether it's new to us or whether it's old, it's, it just... It, challenges us. It it astonishes us. Um, So we we rejoice and we celebrate even though we we struggle still to come to terms with this, to to figure out what to do with it, to figure out how to to put it into practice. And we know we fail. We, We do. We're just weak. But at the core of it is your grace, your mercy, your love that you just keep letting us do that, and you accept us. So, Lord, we thank you. But by your power, transform us. Shape us to, to reflect the true image of your Son. Uh, let your light shine in us, we pray. In the name of, of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen.